thankful for the cross that we were just singing about. We owe everything to what our Savior Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, where he gave his perfect, sinless life in our place. Or just as your word simply and starkly says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we praise you, we rejoice in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, this morning. And we ask that as we look into your word today, you would continue to help us grow in our understanding, in our gratitude, and in our obedience to you based on what you did, Lord Jesus, for us on the cross, based on the gospel message that you, you revealed was truth to us, whereby we have been saved by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there are any that have not yet repented of their sin and turned in faith to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you draw them, that you reveal, open their eyes, their hearts to the truth of the gospel, that they would repent and trust in you and be saved today. So we praise you and thank you for the gospel. We'd ask you to reveal your truth, illuminate us, our hearts, to your truth as we look at it and read it and discuss it this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it is a joy, truly, to have the privilege of sharing uh, God's word with you this morning. It's a little bit of a interlude from what Pastor John is preaching in Matthew, and he'll be back next week to continue that series. But it's just a joy and a privilege for me to, to be able to share from God's word with you today. Well, we're going to be focusing on a short passage from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> in the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church, a church that he founded on his second missionary journey, he spends portions of the letter defending himself, in addition to teaching and encouraging and correcting the believers in Corinth, who, as you read those two letters, First and Second Corinthians, you see they tended to be immature in some ways, and they tended to be also very worldly in certain ways. In studying this passage, it's, it, it will be clear that Paul, though he appears to be defensive, defending himself in certain ways, he's not being defensive in a prideful way, like somebody childishly reacting to, to constructive criticism. Nor is Paul defensive because his character has been attacked and he just hates to have people think badly of him. You know, he's concerned about his image. Paul is defensive for the sake of the message he brought to the Corinthians, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's willing to look extremely foolish, even to suffer torture and to lose his life, to share the truth that salvation is only found in the message of the cross. We, we see this, this same thought in Acts 4.12 that says that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
Paul knew this, and he was defending this message that he knew was the only one that could save people. He simply knew that there, there was no other way for sinful men and women to be made right with God. And he can't stand to hear of others distorting or adding to the message that he's risking his life to preach. So I mentioned that the Corinthian church was, was quite worldly. In many ways, it was similar to our country and our world right now. People basically worshipped sex, indulging in all kinds of sinful distortions of God's design. They sought great pleasure and fulfillment in, in the arts, and they placed a high value on intelligence and the ability to make stirring, persuasive speeches. Paul even scolded them in 1 Corinthians 1.12 for choosing favorites among those who shared Christ with them. I mean, think about that. He's, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Now I say this, Paul says, that each of you says, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, who is Peter. Or I am of Christ. Feeling that they needed to align themselves with these speakers that had shared the gospel message with them rather than simply aligning themselves with the gospel and with Christ. Thomas Schreiner says, this, this church was divided over various ministers since they had imbibed the values of the Greco-Roman world where itinerant speakers <clears throat> entranced crowds with their rhetorical artistry. The Corinthians evaluated Paul and Apollos on the basis of their rhetorical abilities and estimated the wisdom of Paul and Apollos accordingly. In other words, if they were impressed by Paul or by Apollos, they just assumed that what they said must be true. They're wise men. The fundamental problem with this congregation was pride and worldliness. So let me ask you, have you ever found yourself emotionally stirred by a dynamic speaker? I have. I think most of us have heard certain speeches through the years, whether it's a religious speech or a political speech that has stirred our hearts. I can think of political speeches I've heard that, that wowed me. But if you had asked me to share something of substance that was said, even right after the speech, I, I might have come up empty. I mean, I've heard speeches before. I was, I was impressed, but I, I couldn't really tell you something of substance that was said in that speech. We live in a culture that, that values uh, abilities like this and also that values just beautiful and talented people in general, actors, sports stars, motivational speakers that make us feel good about ourselves or that maybe we idolize. We want to be like them. And actually, even many churches today place an extremely high value on the charm, the magnetism, and the winsomeness of the pastors that they hire, sometimes over and above the biblical knowledge and the godly character of those pastors. I think we see this truth played out in the news, don't we? Even recent news, that sometimes churches choose speakers who are very magnetic and very charismatic maybe don't vet them quite as carefully as far as their knowledge of Scripture and their godly character. 
As we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, we'll see great intentionality in Paul's decision to avoid worldly methods and models when sharing the gospel, which we can definitely learn from. So please listen as I read uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's Word. I heard a great quote some years ago, though I don't recall the source. I even Googled a few times and couldn't find the source. But the gist of it is that a truly godly preacher will become invisible by the end of his message. End of the message, the preacher has disappeared. The congregation will be so impacted by God's Word, they will no longer notice the preacher. At the time I heard this, I had recently begun leading worship, and I felt that this same principle applied well to me. When we join together in our times of musical worship, the hope is never that you will view it as a performance, or that after the last word is sung, you'll think something like, what an amazing guitarist, or drummer, or pianist, or singer. The goal is that when we end that time of worship, your first thought would be something like, what a great God, or what a wonderful Savior, that you are left with your focus on Christ, worshiping Him. In the, in the 90s, there's a magazine called Preaching Magazine. Guess what it's about? Preaching. Preaching Magazine. They, they uh, released a poll, and they named as the top preacher of the 20th century a Scottish pastor named Dr. James S. Stewart. Have you heard of him? Scottish pastor Dr. James S. Stewart. I had not heard of him. Hadn't heard of him. Not Jimmy Stewart. Different, different James Stewart. But based on stories from those who knew him, I believe that Dr. James Stewart was a godly, invisible pastor, which might explain why we haven't heard of him. Writer David Allen relates this story. One evening in April 1975, some hundreds of people gathered at the assembly rooms in Edinburgh at the invitation of the publishers of an American magazine with worldwide circulation. They were gathered to honor two of the greatest figures in the field of New Testament scholarship of their day. One of those was Professor James S. Stewart. He arrived by car at the appointed time the doorkeeper told him that the limited parking space where he had parked was for VIPs only. So Professor Stewart apologized. He drove his car a further half mile to another parking space, left it there, and walked back to the event with his wife to the hall. And the, the writer says, there are two things to be said about this. First is that James S. Stewart was regarded as a figure of international stature whose name was, was revered and known throughout the 
evangelical English-speaking world. Second is, of course, it simply did not occur to him that at that time, when he was one of two featured guests at the event, or at any other time, he could possibly have been a VIP. What a, I love that. What a great story. Here he is, one of, one of the uh, honored guests, two guests of this event, and he's told, oh, I'm sorry, that, that parking spot is for VIPs. And so he drives half a mile away. Because it never even occurred to him he might be a VIP. What a humble attitude. It wasn't even conceivable to this faithful, humble preacher. He could be a VIP. So now let's look at Paul's example of a godly, effective preacher. And we'll look at it in three sections, three parts, where he shows us right and wrong ways of communicating the gospel of Christ. First, point one, Paul teaches us that we should never try to improve upon the gospel. We should never try to improve upon the gospel. He says in verse 1, He did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. With the, the phrase lofty speech, Paul's referring to the art of classical rhetoric, training to give clever and persuasive speeches. This gave speakers credibility in that day and elevated status with the Corinthians, and they respected both the message and the messenger who could impress them. This was, this was part of their culture. But though Paul was fully able to give highly intelligent, convincing speeches, remember in Acts 17, his brilliant speech at the Areopagus, where he's speaking to these Greek philosophers, explaining in a brilliant way who this unknown God of theirs was, that there's one true God. Paul was a brilliant thinker, very learned man, very, very intelligent man. So he was fully able to give highly intelligent, convincing speeches, but his goal was not to draw attention to his impressive knowledge or his speaking ability. One theologian wrote, Christian preaching does not persuade the hearers by beautiful or clever words. Otherwise, it would only be a matter of words. It's an interesting thought. Christian preaching doesn't persuade the hearers by beautiful or clever words. Otherwise, it would just be a matter of the right words. Gifted communicators know how to skillfully use words to inspire people, to convince them of their need maybe to join some cause makes me think of cult leaders, but, you know, uh, or make them feel that the speaker cares deeply about them. But Paul's purpose, as David Garland puts it, was simply to give witness to the gospel message. And witnesses need not, need only give their account in plain, simple language. His purpose was to give witness to the gospel message not draw attention to himself. Think about the statement of being a witness for a, for a minute. If you've witnessed a crime, when, let's say, you've witnessed a crime and you, you stay around for the police, policeman to show up to take a report, do you, in a situation like that where you're a witness, do you think he would want you to describe the crime in, in the most colorful, flowery language, like, as the sun began to set, 
I gazed upon the terrifying, surreal scene as the dapper, well-dressed man assaulted the timid, unsuspecting woman who protested in a shrill voice, or something like that. Or would they most likely prefer just the facts? They want the, they want the pertinent details in that, in that case. You're not a commentator in this situation. You're a witness. So when it came to sharing the gospel message, Paul was unwilling to risk obscuring or distracting from the life-giving, life-changing message of the gospel itself. So to sum up this first verse, the point is, dressing up the gospel with human wisdom does not enhance its effectiveness. Dressing up the gospel with human wisdom does not enhance its effectiveness. Next, Paul tells us in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The word translated decided, krino, Greek word krino, involves a process of thinking through and evaluating a situation to reach the wisest conclusion. So this shows that Paul was very intentional in his decision to exclusively and purely preach the message of the cross. He knew that, as one commentator wrote, to give people what they need sometimes means you must not give them what they want. When your child is sick, they might ask for a cookie, but what they need is medicine. The same is true as we speak to others about Christ. They may want to hear other things that make them feel good. We might be tempted to say things that make them feel good, but our mission is to tell them about Jesus and the cross, for Jesus alone can save them. Preacher Robert Murray McShane said this, A man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. What a great statement can't be faithful minister until you preach Christ for Christ's sake. Paul's goal was clearly not to attract people to himself, to start a club of Paul or Paul movement. His, his goal was to attract people only to Jesus Christ, his merciful Savior, of whom this same Paul said in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is Paul's heart. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, returning to the first church where he had served many years before, chose to preach on 1 Corinthians 2.2, part of our passage today. This was the first text he had ever preached when he began his ministry there. He said this to his congregation that he had returned to after decades. My dear friends, in the midst of life, we are in death. This is not theory. This is personal. This is practical. How are you living? Are you satisfied? How do you face the future? Are you alarmed? Terrified? What will you have when the end comes? You will have nothing unless you have Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. When, he, when Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones died four years later, this same verse was in, engraved on his tombstone. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was his focus. Romans 1.16 simply says, this is where Paul simply says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the, the, the summary point of this second verse is only the message of Christ crucified carries God's power to save. Only the message of Christ crucified carries God's power to save. After making it clear that he and we cannot improve on the gospel message and that only God's power is found in, in Christ crucified, Paul shows the need to, this is point two, acknowledge our inadequacy for the task. Paul tells us, tells the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Some commentators believe Paul was referring to being physically limited in some way, possibly even what he referred to as his thorn in the flesh. However, others, such as Thomas Schreiner, believe Paul spoke of weakness in more of a general way, wanting to share, in a sense, in the type of weakness demonstrated by Christ on the cross, perceived weakness, which is actually submission and obedience to the Father's will. So weakness that is appropriate because it, it involves trusting in God and submitting to His will. Fear and trembling may be Paul expressing a humble response to the awe-inspiring majesty of God. Paul had great reverence for God, having been radically transformed by an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that he was saved by grace through faith, not as a result of anything he had done. So Paul wanted to make sure he didn't ever rely on his own abilities, even in delivering the gospel message to others, but only on God's power. This brings to mind what Paul wrote later in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he said, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, so really, Paul boasted of his weakness, took pleasure in his weakness, knowing that when he accepted that, acknowledged that, the power of Christ rested upon him and worked through him. So to sum that up, this verse up, we must recognize our inadequacy when sharing the gospel. It's really important that we recognize our inadequacy when we share the gospel. It's God's power that must work in someone's life, not our, not our, our own cleverness. He goes on to say in verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Introducing a, a clear contrast. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word for plausible is sometimes translated persuasive, and it can even mean enticing 
One commentator says, plausible words of wisdom are the impressive forms of presentation that influence feeling and opinion. Paul's talking about using clever, winsome speech to sway people's opinions. Though he absolutely could have done this, he chose not to do it because, as Schreiner says, Paul did not want the Corinthians to be so entranced with the style and the flair of his discourse that they found themselves accepting what Paul said for stylistic instead of substantive reasons. He didn't want them to accept the message because of his great ability once again. If they accepted the gospel because of a slick speech by Paul, who's to say they wouldn't reject it when a more articulate preacher preaching a different gospel came to town? Paul instead relied on the power of the Spirit to take God's truth and apply it to the listeners' hearts and minds. Some have suggested that where this verse says, uh, demonstration of the Spirit and power, that, that that perhaps meant that Paul's messages were accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders, miraculous works of the Spirit. But more likely, because Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul equates the word of the cross with the power of God. And in in verse 24 of chapter 1, he contrasts signs with preaching Christ crucified. It seems more likely that he's saying that the Spirit's power is manifested through the proclamation of the cross. To ensure that his hearers only encountered the gospel, not the amazing Paul, he taught us to intentionally set aside human cleverness and persuasion to allow for the powerful working of the Spirit. That's a summary of verse 4. Paul taught us to intentionally set aside human cleverness and persuasion to allow for the powerful working of the Spirit. Paul kept his presentation of the gospel straightforward. He kept it clear so that as he says in verse 5, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Knowing that only God can convert sinners, Paul showed us how to, and this, this is point three, trust in God to transform lives. He showed us how to trust in God to transform lives. Paul avoided dressing up the gospel with fancy, eloquent, eloquent words so that when he shared the simple message, there would be no doubt that the Holy Spirit was doing the life-changing work. He didn't want there to be any doubt. Jeffrey Wilson points out that a faith that depends upon clever reasoning may be demolished by a more acute argument, but the faith which is produced by the power of God can never be overthrown. It's a great statement. We don't want anyone to feel convinced of the validity of the gospel because they think we are so smart. Somebody smarter will eventually come along and persuade them with a different viewpoint if they're actually trusting in us and our clever speech rather than in God and the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. And it's really interesting, Spurgeon himself admitted that for a period of time, he kind of saw himself as having that kind of power. He felt that if he was clever enough, persuasive enough, he was going to convert many souls. And he repented of this later and says, I was guilty of believing that. It's not true. 
So he says, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be the converters of souls, nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. That's a powerful statement. Never a soul would be, will be converted unless the Holy Spirit is with the Word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. Truth is, we are incapable of persuading people to change their hearts and their minds regarding the gospel. I mean, I, I think if you're a Christian long enough, you, you learn this from experience, hopefully from the Word of God as well. But I know there are certainly people in my life that over the years I've tried till I was blue in the face to persuade them of the truth of the gospel, of their need for Christ, trying to help them understand what they're missing, why they're miserable, why they have no hope, and where this hope is available to them through Christ. Maybe you have family members like that or co-workers or friends that over the years you've shared with them, you've given them the apologetics books, tried to convince them, and their heart is just not changing. And so you come to a point where you realize, now I need to pray. Just continue to pray and believe that God, trust in God to transform their life. Only God can do that. That is a work of His Spirit in someone's life, not something that I can accomplish if I'm just educated enough, if I do enough research, I pre present it at just the right time in just the right way. We are incapable of persuading people to change their hearts and minds regarding the gospel. Only God's Spirit can break through people's blindness. Because of our inherited sin nature, we actually are all predisposed to resist the gospel message. I don't know if you've thought about that. We're really predisposed to resist the gospel because it condemns us in our sin and it assaults our prideful self-rule. We, we really, in our flesh, we want to be our own God. This started in the garden, right? 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's foolishness to those who are perish perishing. I'm going to read you a little bit of a lofty quote, but I, I think it's a, a powerful one from the French mathematician and, and philosopher Blaise Pascal. He wrote some very deep things in pursuit of understanding what original sin is. He said, original sin is foolishness to men, but it is admitted to be such. You must not then reproach me for the lack of reason in this doctrine, since I admit to be without reason. But this foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this, what can we say that man is? His whole state depends on this imperceptible point. And how should it be perceived by his reason since it is a thing against reason and since reason, far from finding it out by her own ways, is adverse to it when it is presented to her? Okay, that's kind of a long quote. But basically, he's saying, how can you expect someone to embrace the gospel message while in their blinded sinful state when the gospel actually offends and condemns them. 
Does that make sense? This gospel message is offensive to the person who is hardened and living a life in rebellion to God, wanting to be their own God. At its core, the gospel calls for repentance and surrender to Christ, which is definitely not appealing to our flesh. And as offensive as this is to someone living in opposition to God, though, His Spirit and His Spirit alone can enable them to see their need for Christ. He did with most of us. So we dare not alter or soften the message. For it's the only one that with the working of God's Spirit will transform someone's life. Paul gave us a clear example, never attempting to improve upon the gospel, but clearly and reverently sharing it with others, knowing that only God's Spirit can can take His Word and transform lives. His, His approach ensured that Paul received no credit for transformed lives. And because he faithfully shared the pure, true gospel, God received all the glory. This approach ensured he didn't take credit. He didn't receive credit for those transformed lives. God got the glory and the credit. So just kind of summarizing those main points, he taught and showed us that we should never try to improve upon the gospel. We must acknowledge our inadequacy for the task of bringing somebody to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he taught us, third, to trust in God by His Spirit to transform lives. We are to faithfully share the message of the cross, but only God can save people. This passage really has built-in application. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, a real obscured passage. It's pretty clear, but I want to just, just expand a, just a teeny bit and share just a, final, a few final thoughts of application. First thought is, don't ever be persuaded. I guess it's an exhortation. Don't ever be persuaded that the message of the cross is too simplistic. Don't ever be persuaded that the message of the cross is just too simplistic. So you need to just dress it up a little bit. The Greeks were obsessed with philosophical complexities and intricate arguments. Many of them rejected the gospel message because they just didn't find it impressive. Remember that in verse 2, Paul, Paul says, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. John MacArthur comments on this passage, the attitude of some Corinthians was, you just keep speaking that same ridiculous, moronic foolishness about that man and the cross. Where is the esoteric cleverness? Where is the rational speculation? Where is the philosophical complexity? That's why in, in, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul references that they said of him, of Paul, his personal pres- presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Who would listen to him? He's not clever. He has none of that sophisticated wisdom. The message was offensive. The messenger was unimpressive. And the preacher who represented the message was unfashionable. But Paul wasn't ashamed of this foolish gospel, which in reality is, as Romans 1.16 again says, this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So again, that point is, don't ever be persuaded the message of the cross is too simplistic. Point two, resist the temptation, and these go together, 
to think you can improve on the gospel. It's not too simplistic, and don't think you can improve on it. Our pride is always ready to convince us that as wonderful as the gospel is, we can add just a little something to it to make it more appealing, more persuasive, more effective. This approach has, has been adopted by many churches today. I guess my question is, if the Apostle Paul, and, and again, let me make a, just a quick side note. <clears throat> what I'm not saying, and I don't believe this passage is saying, is that we are not to study God's Word, to uh, carefully seek to understand it with the help of the Holy Spirit, and even with other believers who are wiser than us. We are, I'm not saying we shouldn't be prepared to clearly and, and, and um, accurately share the gospel message with other people. I mean, if any of you are involved in Awana, you know 2 Timothy 2.15, you know, proved workmen. Uh, we, we need to be prepared to, to rightly divide, to correctly share the word of God. This is, this, that's very important. It's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is, don't try to improve on the message itself. Or think you can add something that's going to make it a little, go down a little smoother. The Apostle Paul, called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the message of the cross at any cost, and he died doing so, stressed the importance of sharing an unadulterated, clear, pure gospel. Do we think we are somehow more clever or more capable than him of improving on the gospel? Remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that he did not preach the gospel with eloquent words of wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Pretty uh, clear statement. He didn't preach it with fancy words of wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I certainly, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want to do anything to empty the cross of its power when I share it with others. Do you? MacArthur once again says, all your efforts of being fashionable and clever and trying to impress them aren't going to work. You cannot by human reason find God, find Christ, find the gospel, find salvation and come to love the scripture. Man's wisdom can do amazing things in the physical, temporal world of science, technology, genetics, medicine, industry, art, culture, academics. But man's wisdom, individually and collectively, cannot know God savingly. So finally, the second point again, resist the temptation, think you can improve on the gospel. Final point, simply acknowledge that only God can transform lives. I know I'm repeating myself, but it's, it's worth repeating. We should believe, trust, acknowledge that only God can transform lives. God is sovereign. He calls and saves His elect. Think of how this passage from 2 Thessalonians applies to what we're talking about. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-15, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tradition, traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So you note that here Paul, who could have taken some credit here, clearly not taking credit. He says, God chose you as first fruits to be saved. He called you through our gospel. This is God working through the gospel message, not Paul. It is God who saves. It is God who builds his church against which the gates of hell will not prevail, as Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. Not us. Faithfully sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is not a matter of keeping God's truth from being diluted too much, making sure it's at least 80% of the message. His word is living and active and able to miraculously transform lives. We are called to simply and clearly and faithfully share it so that when God works in a person's life, he receives all the praise and the glory and the trust, not us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word in this passage. It's uh, maybe harder to, to apply at times because we struggle with our flesh and our pride because we want to be able to uh, contribute, I think, many times. Think that we can come up with a more clever, persuasive, um, well-received way of sharing the gospel message. Sometimes we sense that people are going to be offended. We're afraid of that. Or we sense that they are already offended as we begin to share and so we're tempted to soften the message or leave parts of it, the gospel out. Lord, Paul gives us this clear example of making sure that we share the gospel clearly, simply that our motive is not to draw attention to ourselves or, or uh, seek to have people be impressed with us or follow us or thank us because we shared so eloquently or so persuasively. God, help us recognize our total dependence on you and on your spirit to acknowledge that you alone take your truth, the gospel message which is foolishness to those who are perishing, yet the power of God to those of us being saved. Your spirit alone can take this unmatched message of the one true Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, whose sinless life paid for the sins of all who will repent and trust in Him. Your Spirit alone can take this message and apply it to the hearts and minds of those who are blinded by their sin. Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Help us to, to share the gospel lovingly to share the gospel boldly when you give us opportunities and would you help us to acknowledge that your power your spirit alone can change hearts and minds and transform lives for your sake help us to trust in you as we share the message and not seek to improve upon it or add anything to it it's perfect the way that you have given it to us 
And we thank you for saving us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray all this in his wonderful name. Amen. All right. Well, would you stand and we'll uh, close us with a, a benediction. And now may our gracious God embolden us to faithfully share the message of the cross, which is the power of God to save sinners. Amen. Amen.